Welcome to Better Than Nothing. What you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. This is Ken Root. I have the pleasure today of talking to a man whose work I've admired since I came to Iowa back uh, 20 years ago. He is Ambassador Kenneth Quinn. You may know him from the World Food Prize. He is emeritus now from the World Food Prize Organization, but he had a long career with the uh, senior U.S. Foreign Service before that, that took him to Cambodia in the 90s. He even had service in Vietnam. This episode of Better Than Nothing is brought to you by Concept by Iowa Hearing. We are committed to helping you hear better. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877 877- 955-4020 for a free hearing screening. Ambassador Quinn, it is great to talk to you again. How are you, sir? Well, I'm great. Thank you, Ken, for uh, inviting me on. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm delighted to have a chance to chat with you, talk about my, my background. And uh, both of us have a connection to Dubuque County in, uh, in eastern Iowa. So uh, make makes for an interesting connection. Yes, it does. You were born in 1942, and of course anything could happen at that time because people were disrupted by the war. You were born in New York City. How did you wind up going to college in Iowa? Well, I, I was right. I was born in the Bronx, and I lived in New York City for the first uh, ten years of of my life. And uh, my my dad was in uh, retail. Uh, sales, and he always wanted to manage his own store. And uh, one day in 1952, uh, somebody at a company said to him, well, there's, the good news is you can manage your own store. The uh, perhaps somewhat less good news might be <laughs> you have to go to La Crosse, Wisconsin to do uh-huh. so. So uh, we went to Penn Station, got on the Broadway Limited, changed trains in Chicago, and... Uh, it was like uh, landing on the moon, uh, going to lacrosse, all, and all the way there, my dad was training us, training me, to learn to speak with a Swedish accent because of all the Swedes. Uh, we stayed there a couple of years. We bounced around, uh, then next to Bloomington, Normal, Illinois, and then as uh, one week before I started high school, he uh, got moved to Dubuque, Iowa, and so... My high school years and college years were in Dubuque, and I went to uh, Loris College. Uh, my family fell on hard times, and the only place in the world I could have gone to college was at Loris, because I could live at home, didn't have to pay any board, and uh, could still eat uh, at home. And I worked three or four jobs all the way through college to pay tuition. And I uh, graduated in uh, 1964. Right after I graduated from Loris, my first job was working in the Hyde House of the Dubuque Packing Company. The Hyde House is where all the animal skins that had been carved off the cattle 
as they were being slaughtered, uh, were brought over in uh, dump trucks, the huge pile of, of skins still covered in blood and feces and entrails, and they were dropped in a huge pile. And one by one, uh, we had a, a small team. We picked them up, laid them down. Somebody would shovel salt on them, and you did that, you know, minute after minute, hour after hour. And uh, if you if you made the rate working there, then you got you know the bonus. Uh, so I think it took us up to three dollars an hour or three fifty an hour if uh, you made the bonus. And it was uh, the dirtiest, hardest. Uh, job I think I, I ever did uh, there working in the hide house at Dubuque Pack. You know it's amazing to me to hear this story of you not that it surprises me that you came from humble beginnings and were a very hard worker because you clearly showed that through your life but I see you as a very sophisticated man I don't think I've ever seen you without a tie on and that you are a diplomat and how did you move into the diplomatic corps using the hide house at Dubuque Pack as a reference? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I uh, so I, I want everyone to know I'm here in my blue jeans and my open neck shirt. Uh, okay. But um, so uh, I my dream was to go to law school. I didn't have enough money to even take the law board test. Uh, but the uh, foreign service exam which was the way that the State Department hired diplomats. There was a, a, a half-day, really hard test. Maybe 20,000 people took the test once a year, and maybe uh, 800 to 1,000 might pass. And then uh, those 800 to 1,000 would have a two- to three-hour oral interview, and eventually 200 people would be hired. But the test was free, so I signed up for it, took it at the University of Wisconsin, and got an envelope saying I had passed, which, so mm -hmm. here's this, uh, you know, kid from Dubuque, never been on a plane, I had never met a foreigner in my life, didn't speak any foreign languages, never had a passport, never been outside our country, um, and, you know, I was uh, like, you know, I, I tell people, Probably, you know, the, the government makes mistakes. They probably got my scores mixed up with some guy from Harvard or Princeton or Georgetown. But, you know, I got, I, I got in, and then I passed the oral exam. And so in 1967, I show up at the State Department, and I had these visions of diplomatic sugar plums dancing in my head. I was going to be going to Paris, London, Vienna, I'd be going to these fancy uh, diplomatic soirees and chandeliered ballrooms and sipping fine wine and aperitif and talking with other diplomats about international relations because that's what I thought foreign service and diplomacy would be all about. When you're from the Bronx and Dubuque, why, you know, it's that's big time. And then uh, the people in the counseling and they like the HR department of the State Department, they didn't call it that, said, well, let's see, you're 25, so you're still draft eligible, and you haven't been married, you haven't been in the military, and uh, the war is going on in Vietnam, 
And so uh, before I knew what happened, they uh, gave me orders, said you got to study Vietnamese uh, for 10, 10 months, hardest thing I ever did, and uh, ended up my you know first passport and plane ride was to uh, from Washington through Japan, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and into Saigon. And then I didn't work at the embassy. I didn't work at a consulate. I didn't work in a regional capital. I didn't work in a provincial capital. I uh, was assigned out in sort of the equivalent of a county in this remote part of the Mekong Delta, working out in eight uh, rice-growing villages to uh, try to convince farmers and people there to not support the Viet Cong uh, insurgency and to uh, carry out uh, rural programs to win the hearts and minds of the people. And I had to stay there for, for 18 uh, months. And I had eight villages where I worked, and I'd go around talking in my halting Vietnamese, which got better as the longer I was there, and asking people about, you know, life and um, and, and their agricultural production. Uh, and at, at that time, so 1968, Norman Borlaug was bringing his miracle wheat to India and Pakistan, which was uh, the start of the Green Revolution there. And there was a new uh, miracle rice uh, that had been developed in the Philippines by an American uh, from uh, Nebraska named Hank Beachel. And we were bringing out this miracle rice, trying to convince farmers to use it. So there were ag extension specialists, Americans and Vietnamese who came to do that. And uh, as I said, we had eight villages. And at the same time this was happening, just by chance, not by plan, there was a, we were upgrading this old dirt road. French, the French had built 60 or 70 years earlier, farm-to-market road that ran through the eight villages. And uh, my job was to uh, you know go out and see how it was going and uh, report back and identify any issues. And so as I, and we had finished fixing the road. Uh, really upgrading it and, you know, put put gravel on it and culverts in and, you know, rebuilt it so trucks could go on it now. So we mm -hmm. finished it through four of the eight villages. And as I drove around, I, I noticed one thing, and it became the lesson of my life. And that was that in it was only in the villages where we had fixed the road that farmers used the new IRA miracle rice. And where farmers used the new miracle rice, life changed dramatically uh, almost overnight because the new seeds could grow a crop in half the time as their traditional rice, so three months instead of six months. Now you could get two crops instead of one. And each new crop was three or four times the size of their previous traditional rice. So now farmers had great deal of surplus rice. Trucks came down on the road to buy the surplus at the farm gate. 
They had disposable income so they could buy more nutritious food for their children. So you'd see children look healthier, better fed, better nourished. Child mortality goes down because now with the fixed road, a mom with a sick child can get the child out to get medical help in time to save their life. Uh, the uh, uh, houses were, would be better built, would be improved. Then you'd see some farmers, maybe they have bought a TV with, with a big antenna or a motorbike or a battery-operated refrigerator. Life, and, and most incredible of all, the Viet Cong insurgency in those four villages with the road seemed to evaporate. It used to be that you could never go at night, and if you went during the day, you had to have security, people with guns to protect you. Now you could go night or day and uh, you didn't have to have much security at all in those four villages with the road. And, but in the other four where the road hadn't been fixed, no one used the new rights. Uh, life was as same as it had been a hundred years earlier. Ramshackle houses, kids didn't stay in school, girls didn't stay in school. They wore threadbare clothes and were skinny and malnourished. And the Viet Cong were as strong as ever. So here I am, 12,000 miles away from Iowa, speaking this, you know, strange foreign language, standing there in these villages. And suddenly I understood what had transformed Iowa and Illinois and Indiana, and Ohio, and everything in the Midwest, and probably all of our country. It was building all of those farm-to-market roads that are every mile in the you know crisscross pattern across Iowa, and it's the same in every other state, that allowed the extension experts from the land-grant university from Iowa State and from the seed companies to get out the school buses to take kids to school. And as Norman Borlaug told me, the Iowa's slogan in the 1930s, get Iowa out of the mud, build roads. <laughs> and it was that combination of roads and seeds that were the key to agricultural transformation. Let's take a moment to talk with Taylor Parker, president of Concept by Iowa Hearing. Taylor, I've heard there's a link between hearing loss and dementia. Could you tell me more about the correlation? That is a great question, Ken, and it's one that, um, you know, it's been out there for quite a few years. Johns Hopkins uh, was the first one that uh, Dr. Frank Lynn that kind of made the correlation. We always knew there was something going on with, you know, hearing loss the brain and things just weren't, weren't, you know, adding up. And his research now, he's been doing his research about over 40 years. What he found is that individuals with an untreated hearing loss, even mild, you are two to five times more likely to develop dementia. And, you know, most people will say, well, why is that? And it's, it's, you know, when you understand how hearing works, it starts to become simple from the standpoint of just understanding it. So, our ears conduct sound and then the sound then gets carried from the middle ear 
to the cochlea, where the cochlea, there's 15,000 tiny little hairs in the cochlea that now move back and forth that send the signal up to the brain where the brain processes that information. And when you have a untreated hearing loss, what happens is those hairs in the cochlea will either get broken, um, bent, or just not move like they used to. Well, what happens then is they're not sending a full signal to the brain. You know, you've been in radio for, for many, many years. You'll understand this. So imagine, you know, back in the day, we were driving down the road, raining really hard or, you know, some kind of elements or we went underneath the bridge and the radio signal would go out. And you're listening to, you know, Paul Harvey at noon and you are, are not quite getting that whole Paul Harvey. And now you're trying to piece it together. You're sitting there, you're leaning forward. You're really trying to get it all to work out. That is your brain all day with an untreated hearing loss. It's trying to piece it together and it's working harder. Well, what it does is it pulls from two areas. It pulls from cognitive and it pulls from balance and gait to compensate for that, that gap because of an untreated hearing loss. The brain then has to work harder. It shrinks. And now we run into a cognitive issue because we've pulled from the cognitive area to help focus on hearing loss. That's where the, the connection now starts to come in. Thank you, Taylor. Schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing. You can reach them at 877-955-4020 or online at iowahearing.com. Now let's continue my discussion with Ambassador Kenneth Quinn. Beginning in the 1960s in the U.S. Diplomatic Corps, and carrying through all the way to being ambassador to Cambodia in the 1990s. You know, I've never heard you tell this story before because I've never heard you talk about you, but I do find this so amazing. This is still not about you. This is about the times, and this is about the opportunities that the world has and the infrastructure even that is formed here that we think everybody has around the world May I ask you one other area of this uh, part of your life before I move on? And that is, supposedly, or here in your bio, it says that you were a civilian, but you won the U.S. Army Air Medal. Can you tell me about the man that did that in his 20s back in the 1960s? Yeah. So, here in in Vietnam, we were uh, given by the State Department to the Military Assistance Command, Vietnam, which was this big advisory organization that operated across the entire country. So my superior, as I was out working in villages, was an Army uh, lieutenant colonel. And uh, so I was uh, set to uh, leave after 18 months, and uh, the senior advisor in my, in, uh, my area, in the Mekong Delta, said, well, uh, we'd like you to stay. What would what would you do? And I said, Well, I I want to be uh, I want to be the district senior advisor. I want to be the senior guy in this other district that was very military. It's all war warfare operated, uh, and it was a U.S. Army ad- advisory team. And he said, I'll approve that right now. So I stayed, and I replaced an Army major. And I headed this 10-member uh, U.S. Army team. We were deployed out with the Vietnamese 
command structure. And uh, I, here I'm a civilian. I don't have to do anything like this. But uh, we, we would accompany uh, Vietnamese troops out on military operations trying to find the North Vietnamese Army or the Viet Cong. And if uh, you're going to send your military people out to where they might be wounded or be killed, you have to do that yourself. So uh, I went out. Uh, I had one, one sergeant say, no disrespect, sir, but there are no civilians in my chain of command. So I said, tomorrow we're going out. Go with me. We went out with these troops out through the rice paddies and into the wood line and carrying, you know, rifles and looking for the Viet Cong. And we got back and he said, uh, sir, you went where I did. You did what I did. Uh, you're my leader. I will follow you anywhere. And so that was very meaningful to me. And so we had all the, we had an Army, U.S. Army air base, helicopter base right near us. But all the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese were in my district, and no American could shoot anybody in my district unless I said so. So every night, we'd get, I'd get in the back of the helicopter with a Vietnamese Army officer, and he and I would speak Vietnamese, and we had four other helicopters, and we'd go out and at about 100 feet in the air, not very high, we'd go out looking for the Viet Cong or North Vietnamese Army who would be you know, might attack the airfield at night. And uh, and I would say, here's, you can look here, you can look there. Those are, those are, that's where the Viet Cong are hiding. We can shoot there. And they'd say, can we shoot these people? I'd say, those are farmers, can't shoot them. So we, ne we never had any collateral damage, any innocent people killed uh, while I was there. And we kept the air base safe. And I flew every night. Uh, almost every night for an hour and a half, two hours. So I had like 250 hours. And uh, you get the uh, air medal. You qualify for the air medal if you do that flying combat missions. So we were flying combat missions to, uh, you know, put in airstrikes and protect Americans. You came all that w yeah. You came all that way through two tours basically in the area, and still were a civilian. I'd like to jump forward a ways and give you a chance to talk to me about being the ambassador to Cambodia. Tell me about your highlights and uh, being the uh, ambassador there for that period of time uh, during the Clinton administration. Um, I, I was there. It was the uh, we had no Marine security guards. Um, it was like Benghazi, right? We were unprotected mm -hmm. by the Marines or, or any U, U.S. force with guns. Um, the, we had, had built this incredible peace agreement and brought these warring Cambodian factions together. And the Khmer Rouge, the worst genocidal mass murdering organization of the second half of the 20th century, still had a presence there. The country went back to fighting uh, my ambassador's residence was hit by a rocket, ringed in automatic weapons fire. Uh, my wife and I threw our three children on the floor. We laid on top of them, praying, praying as hard as, you know, ever prayed that the bullets would kill us and not our children. We, we thank goodness we all escaped from that. Uh, 
and uh, we had to evacuate every American out of the country. And I used the formula of roads and rice to uh, go out into the areas where the Khmer Rouge were, and we used that uh, formula and approach to eradicate uh, the Khmer Rouge. We chased the leaders, Pol Pot, around to try to catch him. He committed uh, uh, suicide rather than be captured, but they all surrendered and we eradicated and obliterated them. Uh, in between, uh, I had to influence uh, government. I, uh, we, we had to protect uh, political activists uh, whose human rights were threatened. Uh, we hid, uh, hid a, uh, a Cambodian politician for two months in our embassy. So it was not the uh, show that you see on Netflix uh, in, <laughs> set in London. It was it was diplomacy on out on the front lines, but I I you know, I, I also you know worked uh, in China. I worked in Vietnam. I negotiated uh, in Vietnamese. I was an interpreter for the president of the United States in Vietnamese in the White House as Saigon was falling, and I negotiated with the North Vietnamese after the war, the first ever entry into. Uh, prisons to look to see if there were live American POW MIAs still being held there. So uh, I've, I've been, you know, to, to the UN and when when I worked with Governor Bob Ray on loan to him and his staff and uh, we worked with the, the UN uh, and to get, be able to bring refugees from Indochina here to Iowa save the the boat people so i i've had this kind of unusual career but being ambassador of course is a singular honor uh in in the middle of all that fighting i got a a call uh from uh two people one was a mormon missionary was trapped in this fighting in cambodia and then from another cambodian american who was an official in the cambodian government but american citizen they were both trapped and about to be killed. So I got my driver, got in my car, uh, and uh, uncovered the American flag. And with my Cambodian driver, I said, let's go. And we drove out into the fighting. I got to the Mormon missionaries who had a big house filled with missionaries. I made sure they were safe, got them so they could uh, get evacuated and arrange for them to be safe. And then I went looking for this other Cambodian-American man uh, who had called me. He had begged me to just call his wife and say goodbye. He was about to be killed. And uh, But I couldn't find him. I kept calling him, and he didn't answer. So I went back into the center of Phnom Penh, the capital, and we had grabbed the hotel ballroom, and we were told all American citizens come there. So I went in there to check on all these people who we would soon moved to the airport so they could leave the country. And I'm walking down the hall, and here's this big Cambodian-American man, who a uh, big burly guy, and and there he is. And I said to him, oh. oh, my gosh, you're here. You're okay. And I said, I came looking for you. I was calling you. And he said to me, he said, I know you did. I saw you. But I didn't dare run out. Um, but... Afterwards, when the troops went, I was able to sneak out 
and and get here. And uh, so in Southeast Asia, people, whether Cambodians or Vietnamese or Lao, whatever, there's no public displays of affection. There's no hugging. There's no kissing, anything like that. And this big, burly, dark-skinned Cambodian-American man, he's standing there. I'm talking to him. And he just takes a step forward. He throws his arms around me. And he squeezes me as hard as he can. And he said a sentence I'll never forget. He said, now I know what it means to be an American. Oh, my goodness. And Master Quinn, you are a amazing man. I am so honored to know you and to hear your story that I think uh, heartens all of us. And it doesn't appear to me that you've missed a step. So I think you... Uh, are still a great ambassador for those of us who know you here in Iowa and around the world. And I wonder if at a future time I might talk to you again and we pick it up right here and move forward into your next career. And that was the one working with Norman Borlaug for the Borlaug uh, World Food Prize and the Borlaug Dialogues and all of the things you have done in that era. I would love to talk to you again if at all possible. Sure, Ken, I'd be happy to do that because I, I left uh, right after my assignment as ambassador in Cambodia. I retired 32 years and came home to Iowa to take over the World Food Prize. And for the next 20 years, I endeavored to continue kind of the theme that de <laughs> developed in my career going back to those rice-growing villages of peace through agriculture. Peace through agriculture is the way I sum up my 55 years career that took me to uh, 88 different countries and uh, political entities around the world. So I'd be happy to come back and talk about China and uh, go into Iran and, and, and building the World Food Prize to fulfill Norman Borlaug and John Ruan's dreams. Well, you definitely took a long life of Norman Borlaug one generation further, at least. And as a result of that, it is going now and continues in Des Moines as one of the more amazing things I think I've seen develop in my time in Iowa. Ambassador Kenneth Quinn, thank you very much for talking with me. All right. Thank you, Ken. Pleasure. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send it to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.